I feel like in a, in a big picture sense, I feel like there's some cultural things going on here that, that I don't quite understand, um, probably because I'm not Hebrew and because I didn't live during this time period. But at the same time, there are, un, there are um, not untimely, principles here that never grow old, that never become irrelevant as well. And so we're going to look at those. What you're going to see as we read James 5, 13 through 20, you're going to see the word prayer mentioned a lot. And uh, now that we've done that study, I'm going to draw your attention to those things. Now you understand what I'm saying. And it's going to give us a flavor, this, this, this end of this epistle of James to these Hebrews that were scattered around. They're not in Jerusalem anymore. They've been scattered because of persecution. He writes this epistle, this letter, to be read in their assemblies. Could be in a synagogue, could be in a home. We don't really know. In multiple places. And to encourage them, yes, in their difficulty, from the very beginning, he's talking about the trying of their faith and to be patient and endure to the end. And how that's a proof of, of, of your love for the Lord. He that endures to the end. Don't be double-minded. And if you need help, ask for wisdom. And then he, then he starts going through all of these different tests, all of these different areas that should be a part of a genuine Christian life. And we find that maybe there were people in this Hebrew population that maybe were struggling. Do I really profess faith in Christ? I mean, they came out of religion. Jesus, uh, the Messiah, was foretold for a long time, and now he had already come, but some of them were still struggling with if he really did come. Am I really having faith in him, or do I go back to the way it used to be in my religion, what's comfortable for me. And of course, we saw some of those. We saw some genuine converts. James was seeing that. He was addressing those issues, addressing how they were still enamored with the world. They were bickering with one another. They were living according to their lusts, etc., etc. But as we draw this all to a close, as James wraps up the end of this letter, he deals with their weakness. We saw last week and the week before that he gave this scalding reprimand to those who were rich and, and what it was doing to probably some of the Hebrews that he was writing to at the, at the time. He, he, he addresses that to them, and then he encourages them, but be patient. Suffer patiently, because the Lord is coming. The judge is coming. The judge is at the door. You can do this. You can last. And of course, we're still waiting, even now, being patient. He's dealing with people who are in affliction. He's dealing with people who, at this point, are weak, it seems like. And pretty much his go-to answer during the entire time is pray. He brings it up over and over and over again. So let's read that together, if you would, and I'm just going to try and give you some thoughts tonight. And maybe, if nothing else, it'll spur on some study on your part. I have opened up the passage, I've gotten all the definitions, all the word meanings, all the phrases, and, and there's just still some in there, I just can't figure it out. But let's see what we can figure out here tonight, amen? James 5, 13, is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. If you have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. 
Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death, shall hide a multitude of sins." We saw in those last two verses there as he wraps up and finishes his letter, he addresses this issue. There are some of you that are not genuine in your faith. And he speaks to the ones that are, and he says, brethren, if you would be instrumental in converting those brethren, those sisters that are not genuine in their faith, if you would confront them, if you would tell them the truth, you will be saving that soul from death. Of course, this is the iconic uh, epistle that, uh, that centers around the verse, faith without works is dead. So this is all throughout the passage. But let's deal with just a few verses tonight in verse number 13. We see, number one, the Christian response to life. The Christian's response to life. Life can be hard. It can be difficult. I, I wager it probably can be much more difficult in, in other countries. We have it a little bit comfortable, but even in a comfortable country, life can be difficult. He says there in verse number 13, is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. So he gives a few if statements, right? There's two of them right here. The, the next verse has another one. And he says, if this is the case, do this. If this is the case, do this. And he gives us some responses of a Christian. He said, if you're afflicted, afflicted just means undergoing a hardship. It's the same word that's right there in verse number 10, talking about the affliction that the prophets endured as well. We've seen their affliction. We've seen what they endured, how they were patient in their suffering. That's the same exact word. It just means they're undergoing a hard time. They're, they're in a difficulty. He says, is any among you in the middle of a difficulty? Pray. Take it to the Lord. Take those things to the Lord. And then he flips it around. He says, is any of you merry? Hey, be thankful. Sing psalms. Sing praises to God. Don't just take that upon yourself and, and take it on the easy road. Set it on coast uh, or on cruise control. Coast. <laughs> Set it on cruise control. You don't have to think about anything. No, that's a time to praise God, to acknowledge that things are really good right now. Things are really blessed right now, we might say, in the South. He goes on to verse number 14, the third question. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. That word sick, I, I wanted to know exactly what this meant, so I was looking up words all over the place. The word sick there is a Greek word, esthenai, which I know you don't care about that, but it, it means to be physically weak or feeble. That's one definition. To be weak in means, like poor, or just to be sick. So we... A lot of times when you're studying the original language, you're going to find, especially in Greek, that there's sometimes two, sometimes three, sometimes four, sometimes more different meanings that the word could have. And the 30 to 40 different voices and tenses um, has an adjustment on that. And, but the major adjustment on what the meaning is is the context. And translators will go through that process, and of course much better than I, seeing how they know those languages fluently. But the, we can, a lot of times, as just English-speaking people, we can look at the context and see really what that word, is, what it means, okay, for us today in 2022. So he says, is any sick among you? 
This, this word sick is typically, doesn't mean it is here, but it's typically used for physical sickness. Okay, but it just means to be without. Something is not right. Either I'm not financially right, either I'm not mentally right, uh, I'm not physically right, whatever it is. But he says, is any sick? And we could say really, is any weak? He's dealing specifically with a weakness that is happening here. Could be because of affliction. He just said that in the, next, in the verse previous to this, right? Is any afflicted? Maybe they've been enduring this persecution for a long time, and honestly, they're just getting tired. They're just getting weak. Maybe they are actually physically weak and diseased. We don't, we don't know exactly. But if this is the case, this is what he says, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Well, that's, that's an interesting thing, especially since we don't have elders at Eastside Baptist Church, right? So what, what do we need to do there? Well, the elders of the church, elders is the word presbyteros, Presbyterian, that's where they get that from. Um, an elder uh, denotes someone who is older. He's older, he's more mature in the faith, he's spiritually mature, but in this case, he says the elders of the church, right? So this is, this is not just an older person in the church. This is someone who has been given a position, has been given a label. He's an elder of the church. It's, it's consistent with the New Testament idea of elders in the local assembly. And I'll give you a couple spots of that as I was practicing it. Oh, sorry, did I go in the wrong spot? Oh, there we go. I was touching buttons, must be. In Acts chapter 14, we see elders mentioned, and it says, and when they, and this is Paul and Barnabas, when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. So they're going through, they're planting churches, and they're ordaining elders for those churches. You also see it in Titus chapter 1. Verses 5 through 7, Paul says, For this cause I left thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, etc., etc. This is the qualifications for a bishop. But did you notice the transition there? Elders and bishop are used interchangeably. In this passage, it's the same person. So I don't know that we can clearly say that elders is a separate office from the pastor. I don't, I don't know that you can biblically prove that. However, what we do know is many times, or all the time actually, when it's mentioned, there's more than one. Uh, we try to do that here as well. This ministry is not built upon the pastor. It's not. It's... Uh, right now, there's two pastors. Uh, actually, look back there. That's not him. <laughs> He's so hilarious. <laughs> and uh, there's two pastors right now. So we could actually say, I think biblically, and rightfully so, we could say two elders in the church. Uh, would we have more in the future? Maybe. I'm, I'm definitely not against that. But he says, if any sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Whether it's people that we have elected as pastors, whether it's older spiritual men that have taken leadership positions in the church, he is saying these men that have been saved for a long time, they're spiritually mature, they're, um, they're proficient in intercessory prayer. If you're sick, if you're weak, call out for help. Get other spiritual men involved, men that have proven themselves to be spiritual men, and let them pray over you. And literally, um, Pray over him. That's literally praying above a person. 
So we don't know exactly what was going on there, okay? But it says, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Well, there's something sometimes, all right, I'm just going to say this. Sometimes we'll take things that I think happened because it was, in a, it was in Israel or it was in a Hebrew land or something. Take something they did as a culture and we make it a doctrine in America. And I don't know that that's necessary. And I'm just going to say I don't know that the oil is necessary. We don't really find any. I don't see any proof of that. Okay? He says anointing him with oil. It literally means to rub or to crush. They were literally rubbing the oil on this person. Now that's what they were doing. It's not uncommon in other Jewish things. Okay, in, in Mark chapter 6, verse 12, we see them talking about anointing people as well. Um, and they went out and preached that men should repent, and they cast out many devils and anointed them with oil, or I'm sorry, anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. You remember this period of time when Jesus first sent his disciples, their very first internship, sent them out. Remember what he did? He gave them power to expel demons, to heal the sick, and when they went out and did this, they were performing miracles. And as they're performing the miracles, Mark says they were anointing them with oil. So the oil wasn't the magic. Jesus had already given them the power. Any more than this, this oil that's rubbed on the people here in James chapter 5 is what heals them. We know this by the very next verse, okay? Look at the very next verse there in verse 15. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. So we know it's not the oil that saves them. I do not know what part the oil plays, but there's nowhere that I can find that it's a dab on the forehead. That's something we made up. Maybe it was medicinal. I mean, it is the actual word there is olive oil. So maybe it was medicinal in property. Maybe it was a symbol. There's a lot of symbolism in Christianity. I don't really know. But what saved them, what healed them, saved meanings, not saving to salvation, but bringing them back to wholeness. What healed them was the prayer of faith. It says in verse 15, the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if you have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Well, that's an interesting phrase right there. So he just lumped healing with committing sins and he put him in the same thing. You say, well, what is he talking about there? Well, I know the word sins right there is hamartia. It is actually sins. Uh, homardiology, the study of sin, okay? Um, this is the word for sin. We find that there were people here that were in a weakened state. I, I think most of us would admit when we're in a weakened state, it's easier to sin, is it not? I mean, if you're spiritually weak, mentally weak, physically weak, and many times our inhibitions are lower, we, our resistance is down, and we can tend to fall into sin and do things that we wouldn't normally do or we don't resist like we would have before. Maybe that's what he's talking about. I'm not really sure. This is one of the question marks I wasn't able to relinquish. Maybe you can. But he continues on, continues on. In, in our reactions to the Christian life, it's pray, it's pray, it's pray. He says, hey, if everything's going great, that's great. Make sure you praise God for that. But if it's not, Pray whether you're praying just straight to God or whether you're taking it to other spiritual men, leaders in the church, people that have proven themselves to be spiritual men, would you pray over me? Would you, would you do, I just, I am weak. I don't feel like I can get my words past the ceiling. I need you to help me. I need you to pray for me. The prayer of faith, James says, will save the sick, will restore that wholeness. 
and the Lord shall raise him up, not the oil. In verse 16, he says, well, here's another aspect to it. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. Well, here's another aspect. What is he talking about? Confess your faults. Well, confess, we know what that means. It literally means to say the same thing. Okay, so there's an agreement there. Uh, when you confess your sins to God, you're agreeing with God of what your sin is. You're saying, God, I have sinned. And of course, you're agreeing with God because he already knew that. But now you bring it to him, I've sinned. I'm admitting it. I see what I've done before you. And in 1 John 1.9 says, if we'll confess, if we'll say the same thing about our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So here we have confessing our faults one to another. We're not confessing to God. We're confessing to each other. So what is he talking about? Well, we're saying the same thing, so we are being honest about what we've done to someone else. Our fault, our trespass. The word there literally is paraptama, which means a side slip, means an error. You messed up. I messed up. I'm coming to the assembly, whether it's on a Wednesday night, a Sunday night, whether it's on the phone, a text message. Hey, man, I, I messed this up. Would you pray for me? And that's really the supposition there. That's the, that's the prerequisite. I'm not just needing to get this off my chest. I need you to pray with me. We need to take this to the Lord, and, and I, I've messed it up, and I don't know about you, but when we mess it up many times, we're not on the best praying ground. So we're asking a Christian brother or sister to come in on us, partner with us on this. Would you pray with me? I, I, I uh, had a definite sidestep here. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another. Again, that you may be healed, that you may be made whole. Sometimes it's easy to forget that when we have sinned in our life, when we have fallen spiritually, that we are not whole. Things are not right, and we'll let those things go. I think we've seen lately that that's not what God wants for us. James is encouraging these brothers and sisters. Hey, if you're, if you're afflicted, you're weak, cry out to God, pray. Hey, if everything's great, that's awesome. Praise him for it. But if not, and you're too weak even to pray that way, then you need to take it to some spiritual men, those in the church who have proven themselves so they can pray over, they can encourage you. And hey, you know what? If, if you're caught in sin, you just need to be transparent about it and call a Christian brother or sister and have them pray with you about these things. Pray on the same grounds. We see the response to life, prayer and praise. And then he goes on, and he kind of gives an illustration. Number two, prayer is powerful. Now, any of us that grew up in church or been around church at all, we'd say amen, prayer is powerful. What exactly does that mean, though? I mean, let's just be honest. What exactly does that mean? I don't know. I'm going to get to the bottom of it here, but let's just see what he says. He says, he continues, by the way, um, verse numbers and chapter numbers are not inspired, just so you know. So I'm going to give you my opinion. I think verse 16 should be split in half because the thought changes. Okay? Confess your faults one to another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Then he says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, and he goes into an illustration about it. Prayer is powerful. Verse 16 says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We've heard that verse over and over again, right? There is obvious power in prayer. This, this phrase, effectual, it's the word energeo. Sound familiar? Energy. 
It's an active prayer. It's not a dead prayer that you would pray in a false religion to an idol. It's not the rosary, Hail Mary, full of grace, and all those other things. It's, it's not prayers that you repeat. I, I would almost say, I'm going to step out on a limb here, it's not even prayers you read out of a book. It's your own prayers. It's prayers that have life, you pouring your heart out to God. Energeo, the effectual, fervent prayer. It's working. It's effective. It's going forth. It's showing. Sometimes it's even translated mighty. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man. So there's a little bit of a qualifier there. Righteous meaning upright or approved or acceptable. You know, it's not just that we can come to the Lord whenever we're in the ditch and he's going to rescue us. It's not just about that. Not saying God won't answer that prayer. But if you want power in your prayer, God says you need to be righteous. You need to stay right with me. Holiness needs to be a part of your life. I'm not your, your genie. I'm not your gumball machine that you can just put a quarter in and get what you want when you want it, when you're out of gum. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man is able to accomplish a lot, much. And he encourages them with an illustration. I think this is really interesting. He starts talking about, in verse 17, Elias. Anybody know who that is? So it's transliteration. The Greek name for Elijah is Elias. When they put it into English, Elias. So it's Elijah. That's the Old Testament prophet Elijah. Uh, Elijah, he says in verse 17, we'll just put our, the word we know in there. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. So this prophet prayed that it would not rain, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. That's kind of powerful prayer, right? <laughs> I, think, I think we could all agree there. In verse 18, and he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth fruit. So he prayed at the beginning that the rain would stop, and he prayed at the end that the rain would continue again, and it did. Now, when we look at 1 Kings 17, which is where this actually happens in the Bible, it's recorded. We're going to show you some verses here in a minute. It's two chapters. When we look there, it doesn't give all these details. This is really interesting and exciting to me about the Word of God. Um, the same God that wrote it back in 1 Kings 17 is writing it here in James. He's writing two different parts of it, although it's probably about 3,000 years apart when it was written. Pretty cool. But here's the illustration of Elijah when we're talking about the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And let's be honest, if we were honest, we may all wonder if we are that righteous man. Because sometimes we really don't feel like our prayers are really that effective. So James stops you right there and them. And he says, let me give you an illustration. This illustration is about Elijah. If you know anything about Elijah in the Bible, Elijah was like a Jewish icon. I mean, he was even, he was even prophesied in Malachi that Jesus would be coming, and they used the name Elijah. I mean, Elijah was like the I Ching of spirituality. He was the prophet of prophets. He was right up there with Moses and Abraham, and just in a different, different column, if you would. And he uses this almost superman of the Hebrew faith, Elijah, and the first thing he says in verse 17 is, not that he was really righteous and he was really close to God, he says what? He was a man subject to like passions 
as we are. First thing he points out is he was just a man. Just a guy. This guy you practically worship, he was just a man. He prayed earnestly that it might not rain. Earnestly is very close to that fervently that we just read. He prayed earnestly. Uh, pros, uh, let's see, so I pronounce it. Prosuche, prosecato. Two very similar words. It's basically like a double word. Literally, he prayed that he prayed. Two words put together conveys force. It's almost like uh, it was like this, and then he prayed earnestly. Literally. It rained not on the earth for the space of three and a half years. Now, if we read, and we're going to in a second, 1 Kings 17, we find that this was God's act of judgment on King Ahab. And God told him to do this. And he was obedient. He, he, he obeyed the Lord. Judgment came on King Ahab. And then we find in this, um, let's see, we got here. So here we are, verse uh, 17, verse 1. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. God tells him to judge Ahab. He does it. Rain stops, dew stops. We find in the next two chapters the, uh, the widow of Zarephath, where he goes and, and he multiplies you know, the cruise of oil. She's about to die and her son's going to die. And God works a miracle. That's during this time. And then as we come further, let's see, I think the next one there, 18 verse 1, next chapter. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. Now it's been three years saying, go show thyself unto Ahab, and I'll send rain upon the earth. So the whole time, what is Elijah doing here? Oh, he's a man that, he's a man of like passions, and he was a spiritual man, absolutely. But what is he just doing here? He's just obeying what God told him to do. He's obeying. He's staying in communication with the Lord. Verse 41, we'll go to another one there. And Elijah said unto Ahab, get thee up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of abundance of rain. Verse 41 comes in right after the famous story that we all heard about the prophets of Baal, where, you know, Elijah dances around and says, put your stuff up on the altar, you know, and he douses it with water and everything, and fire comes from heaven. This, this is Elijah. This is this guy <laughs> that really just obeyed the Lord. He just did what God told him to do. And I think sometimes we can overthink it when our main job is just to do what God tells us to do. I mean, that's really just an act of faith right there, to do what God is telling you to do. When you open the Word of God, we've been blessed in, in New Testament to have this. You open the Word of God, you read what God tells you to do, and you do it. God says, if you're afflicted, I want you to pray. I want you to bring it to me. Well, I don't feel like I'm like an Elijah. I don't feel my prayers are very powerful. It doesn't matter. God told you to do it. Do what God told you to do. Say, so, hey, if you're, if you're almost too weak to pray on your own, why don't you get a hold of somebody at the church and ask them to pray for you? Somebody that you know knows the Lord, a spiritual person, been saved for a while. And why don't you call your friend up on the phone and say, listen, I'm really having a tough time. I've, I've kind of messed something up, and, and would you pray with me about that? Pray. Hey, if everything's going great, praise the Lord. That's awesome. But if you're having a hard time, if you're weak, pray, pray. Elijah, I think we could say here that James is saying, yes, Elijah was special, 
He was obviously this righteous man, but at the same time, James is saying he is just a man. He has like passions as you. He thinks the same. He falls the same way. He's tempted the same way. There's nothing spiritual or super spiritual or superhuman about this man that you all have all of these spiritual stories about. He just obeyed God. And if you and I obey God, God can do whatever he wants to in our life. You say, well, God couldn't do that. Well, he could if he wanted to. The key is obedience, right? The key is believing him. Believing he could do these things and just obeying what he says. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is the response. Prayer connects us to the Lord. And that is really where we need to be. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I hope and pray, Lord, that